following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, January 27th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you know, we've been looking through 2 John. God willing, next week we'll come to 3 John. And uh, these letters are very small in terms of length, but they're big in terms of the truth that they put before us. And we've been going through and noticing God has certain priorities for the church, right? Certain priorities that he holds up for the church in all times and in all places. And so we, we, we saw last week that one of God's priorities for us <clears throat> is that we would progress in the truth as we walk in the truth as followers of Christ. And that also a second priority is that we would practice the truth. We see that in the command to love one another, that we would practice the truth. And today, as we read through 2 John and focus on verses 7 through 11, we'll see that God holds out to us the priority of preserving the truth, right? to preserve the truth for not only the current generation, but, but those which are to come. Now, in Jude chapter 1, since there's only one chapter in verse 3, Jude speaks there and says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to ask you and to plead with you to contend for the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. As Christians, this is part of what we do is we understand that that our environment calls for us to contend for things that are often opposed that are often denied, but in our own hearts and hopefully as we're able to persuade others to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to preserve the truth. And we'll hear that again through the Apostle John, that very same heart. Let's listen as I read that for us now. Second John, starting in verse one. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, pause there, Imagine that green Mr. Yuck sticker. Watch yourselves. There's a warning here. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 
Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Lord, help us again as we consider what you say here through the Apostle John, how it's still relevant for us, and then give us the clarity and the courage that we need to apply this to our lives in a way that would most honor you and help the people you've called us to reach and to love. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Second John, verse 1, preserving the truth. Before we get to verse 7 through 11, look with me very quickly at verse 12 so that you don't think we left it out. I only have a couple of things to say in these last couple of verses. Number one is, as preachers, we always have much more to say than we can in the limited time that we have. Like John, I'll have to remember to cut myself off at the right time and just trust God to help you with what I didn't say. But I want you to notice also it says here that John hopes to come to talk to the church face to face. All I want to say when it comes to this is we live in a day and a time where technologically speaking, we have so many options when it comes to how we communicate with each other. All right, it's, it's very tempting at times, I know, to, to simply email or text or tweet. Not, not that there's anything wrong with these in and of themselves, but, but some things are so important uh, that they actually require face-to-face conversation. I don't want us to forget that, all right? Face-to-face conversation. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. You're very sensible people. The, Lord, the Lord's Spirit will guide you. Verse 13. Verse 13. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now John opens this letter speaking of, to an elect lady, and he closes it speaking about this elect sister. All right? And I have been taking the position during this series that, that John is speaking by way of metaphor here. That these women he speaks about, the lady here in verse 1 and verse 5 and the sister down in verse 13 are congregations of believers, churches of Christians, and he is addressing them as such. Now, I I will say to you very openly, not everybody agrees with me on that point. So throughout the history of the church, many people have, have seen this as John speaking to a particular woman that he calls the elect lady in the beginning, that she has particular children he knows uh, right, like we might have Callan and Thatcher, so they, they're like, almost like you're speaking directly to a particular lady. Um, and again, I, so that's not the position I've taken, and, and throughout history, I think most people are on the side that I would hold. But this is something that if you, if you disagree with that and you have your reasons for disagreeing with that, it, it's not a primary issue, right? You, we can disagree on this particular issue and still both come down well within the circle of Christian orthodoxy. Okay? Now, I promise you, I don't come down on my position where I am because I want to slight women in any way. I had a conversation with somebody who, who alluded to that. And of course, I'm not as sensitive to that as, as women are. You can understand why. Um, but that's not why I come down on that side of the issue. All right? But again, we can disagree on this one, and we're both still within Christian orthodoxy. What we're going to talk about with the rest of our time, though, we can't say that about what we're going to talk about. What we're talking about in verses 7 through 11 is so crucial that if you disagree with what John says here in the Bible, you are no longer talking about Christianity. You are outside of the Christian faith and have departed from it altogether. Look at verse 9, and you can can get a sense of this. John says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not 
continue or abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Many people leave Christ behind. Many people deny Jesus Christ and still imagine that there is some alternative and equally valid way to God. And the Bible says over and over again in many ways that this is simply not the case. All right, so that is seen as harsh in today's environment. It is seen as overly obnoxious or exclusive, and it conflicts with modern, uh, quote-unquote, progressive values um, that value inclusivity and, and almost a non-discriminatory or non-distinct kind of way of looking at all ideas, right? Non-distinguishing. That's just part of the air that we breathe in today's world. But the Bible over and over again will say, if you do not have Christ... You do not have God. And so I may not be able to persuade everyone in the room of that this morning, and that's understandable. I at least want to hopefully provide you with clarity concerning what the Bible actually teaches. All right, so John says here, if you don't continue with Christ, you do not have God. Look at verse, verse eight. He says, watch yourselves so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but may gain a full reward. So what's at stake in what we're talking about here this morning is the loss of the full reward that would rightly belong to enduring and faithfulness to Christ. Look at verses 10 through 11. I mean, this thing was so crucial and departing from this is so bad that John actually says this. Now think about this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, Christians who everywhere else in the Bible are commanded to be hospitable, to open their homes, to care for people out of, sacrificially out of what they have. Christians are always called to be hospitable everywhere else. And look, look at what it says here. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching that John is referring to, don't even receive this person into your house. Don't give them any greeting. Because whether you realize it or not, if you do this, you're actually taking part in his wicked works. Now, it may not feel like that. It didn't feel like that when I simply gave those uh, two ladies Jehovah's Witnesses. It was a hot day, and I let them come inside. I gave them some ice-cold water and, and, you know, let them sit for a while just to put their feet up and then go back out to spread their heresy. But now I, I read this and I question, should I have done that? Was, was the heat God's way of exhausting them and sending them back home early? I don't know. It's possible. All I'm saying is that as Christians, I, like, so I don't want to allow my current understanding of what kindness or compassion requires at a particular moment to lead me to deny something that God's Spirit expressly commands me to do. I want to be able to trust that as I follow the leading of God's Spirit as He speaks in His Word, that I'm actually doing what's best at that moment. All right, and, and at that point, that, if, if what God means here is that I should not do that, then that would be hard for me at that moment because it goes against everything I believe to be right at that moment, right? So, but I would have to, if that's what God is saying, I would have to repent. Now, I don't know if that's what he's saying. At the very least, I think what God is saying is this, and we, we have some members in our church, I don't know how many of you know the Aiken family, but as I prepare for these messages, one of the things I've been reading is a commentary written by Paul Aiken's dad. Danny Aiken has written a commentary on this book, and I think he gets it right. He says here that what we must not do is we must not provide a base of operation and material support 
for those who are spreading a false message to others. Okay, we can still be kind, but there's a line between being kind and bringing hospitality and and support and a base of operation to someone who's spreading a false message. Lord, help us to, to know the difference between those things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so that, that we see. Now, what could have been so bad? What was this particular doctrine or heresy John had in mind when he told them all these things and drew such a bold line in the ground? Well, look at me, look, or look rather at verse seven with me, and you'll see it. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. I don't know if you've studied heresies before, um, but this is a particular one known as docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism. It's taken from a Greek word that means to seem or to appear. Docetism was gaining in popularity. The teaching was that Jesus was not fully human. He didn't really have a human body. He only seemed or appeared to have a human body. The word did not become flesh, as we read in the Gospel of John. He simply appeared to do so. And and contrary to all the evidence, like you hear the Apostle John saying at the beginning of 1 John, no, 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 that that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have held, which our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. I'm telling you, we we witnessed and firsthand, we, we touched him, we held him, he has a body. Everybody could see that that's how it appeared, but, but these people, these docetists, backed into their idea that Jesus only seemed to have a human body, contrary to all supplied evidence, because they already had a commitment to another idea. See, the, the philosophical environment that they lived in was steeped in what we would call Platonic dualism. Plato had taught this and others as well, Aristotle, but, but there was a, a complete separation between the spiritual or the immaterial and the material world. And the spiritual world was good, the material world was evil, and there's no way that God would come in and have anything to do with all of that. So these people, while they professed faith in Christ, and in many other areas would have done things that are consistent with obedience to Christ, because of the philosophical or worldview environment they lived in, they found themselves backing into heresy because they wanted to continue to believe in that Platonic dualism. Did you know that it's possible to be here every week and for your deeply held beliefs and assumptions to be more guided by the worldview of everything outside of this room, everything outside of this Bible? It's very possible. It is the easiest thing to happen. And that's what was happening to these docetists. In fact, in the second century, there was a man named Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon or Lyon. You go, go and read his book called Against Heresies. Over 1,800 years ago, 1,900 years ago, he has adequately answered pretty much every heresy that you and I still hear about today. All of the controversies, he's already dealt with them centuries ago. We don't need to make anything up. Just go and read what he wrote. And in that century, in the second century, so a little bit after John writing here, there was a man named Serenthus and another man named Basilides. And Serenthus taught that the Christ spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism and then departed before he was crucified. Such that the Christ was never crucified, was never in any way assailed in that manner. And Basilides taught 
that, that you, you ever seen that, uh, what's, what's the name of that, that movie with uh, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta in it? Face Off. Face Off. I'm so glad some of you watch movies. <laughs> but anyway, uh, out there. So this thing happened is what Basilides taught. He said, you know, there was some kind of face-off, some switch that happened, and, and Jesus didn't get crucified. It was actually Judas. Or rather, he, he taught that it was Simon of Cyrene. Right, the guy who helped carry Jesus' cross. Some, some weird switch happened, and Simon was the one who ended up on the cross instead of Jesus. Now, our, our Muslim friends today may not be aware that that is an ancient heresy, but that is exactly what they believe. They believe that Christ was never crucified, the one they call Isa, Jesus. But instead of Simon of Cyrene, they believe Judas was the one that did the switcheroo and ended up on the cross. And they believe this to be direct revelation from Muhammad and from, from Allah through Muhammad. But it's actually just a very recooked and recycled heresy. Hundreds and hundreds of years old, long before Muhammad ever came on the scene. All right, so you and I need to be aware of what's going on in the ideas that are circulating. All right, and part of that is just simply reading. We just have to pick up old books written by dead people and read them. You know, and they, so educated, so informed by this. But this is what was going on. All right, these heresies were being circulated. And all throughout the Bible, you see this being addressed, even if you don't know the name docetism. For instance, look at 1 John chapter 4. Verse 1, John will say, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false spirits or many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. All right, so he's already addressing this. Luke did his part to address this at the end of his gospel. In Luke chapter 24, you don't necessarily have to flip there, but in Luke chapter 24, at the very end of, of Luke's gospel, starting in verse 36, he's speaking about the resurrection of Jesus and how it took place, and Jesus shows up to see his disciples, and they couldn't believe it was really he. And so in verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubt? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, see my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And after he said that, for those who didn't believe, he said, you know, you, you have any fish? Here, give me one of those. And he just eats it in their presence. He, Jesus is fully human. At the heart of this heresy was the inability to believe that Jesus could be fully God and fully human at the same time. But that is precisely what we must believe about Jesus Christ. And to depart from this is to depart from the Christian faith entirely. It's what we refer to as the hypostatic union. Don't want to get too technical with you. But the merging by God's power of these two natures in one Jesus Christ Fully God, fully human. Never to be confused, but never to be separated. Fully God, yet fully man, not half and half. And a lot of times people go with the half and half. He's 50% God, 50% man, almost like Hercules. You know, like Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> Talk about my movies now, right? 
But that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about Christ. All right? We're not talking about that. Fully God, fully human. Anything else is actually heresy. And let's move on and talk about why this is so relevant for us today. Why is this still so relevant? Why is this not just theology that, that kind of floats around? This is real life. Just as the word becomes flesh, these ideas, this philosophy, these, these things of matters of theology, they, they come and they touch real life. Right? Because this inability to believe that Christ could be both God and human at the same time, fully God and fully man, shows itself in a number of different ways. For instance, how many people really have difficulty believing that when Christ was raised from the dead, he was raised bodily? No, that's too God. That's too fully God, the resurrection. Surely when he rose, it was more of an apparition. You couldn't ascend to heaven in a, in a human, a fleshly body, could you? Look, stuff we make can get through the atmosphere. I have no problem believing that stuff God makes can do the same. No problem believing that. Are we talking about God or not? How is it that men and women have been able to successfully get space shuttles through the Earth's atmosphere to the moon, but somehow we believe God can't make a body, a resurrected body, that can do the same and go even further? No, I I don't have enough faith to believe that stuff. I, I believe God knows exactly what he's doing and how to do it. But many of us, even if we don't deny the full humanity of Christ, in his earthly life prior to the cross, do we not have difficulty at times believing in the full bodily resurrection of Christ and his ascension in the same likeness? Right, many people still embrace these heresies. I I was sitting at an Einstein brothers, uh, the the bagel place over at Libby Place, this was years ago, but I still remember it. I've never seen this guy again, but I had a conversation with a guy there who was a Jehovah's Witness that day. These people always find me. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to eat my bagel, and he comes over. He's got a Bible open. I can't resist that. So we, I'm like, man, this is, what are you reading? And we start to talk. And, if, you know, it, it, it takes all of about 20 seconds, and you can realize, okay, and you, we've got the same book, but we're coming from, from two very different places. You know, the best way to test these spirits is to, is to just say, what, what do you believe about Jesus? It'll cut through everything else, and let you know right where you are. Anyway, I was talking to this gentleman and he, he persuaded to try to, uh, or he began to try to persuade me to become a Jehovah's Witness and it was not going to happen, but he tried anyway and I was very grateful that he did. We had a great conversation. And in the course of that conversation, he began to share with me some of his beliefs, namely that the Christ spirit simply descended upon Jesus like a dove at his baptism and then left before he was crucified. And I thought to myself, do you know that this is a very old and recycled idea? Right, I don't know where you are in your environmentalism. You know, people aren't always good at recycling paper and plastic, but we're very good at recycling ideas. And this man began to, he may as well have been Serenthus himself, and he began to explain to me how this was the truth, and then he proceeded to tell me, you know, I know you Christians, I was like you, I, I went to this church, we believed all that stuff, but now I've come to see the light, and I've come to see the truth, and I'm one of Jehovah's Witnesses, and, you know, because we use the name Jehovah, it, it sounds more spiritual and more correct, whatever the case is, 
He began to tell me that because he was a man of the scriptures, this is why he believes what he does today. And, and he looked at me and said, you exalt your traditions above the scripture. And so I took my Bible and I turned it around. I read it upside down as I often do. And I, I took him, I was ready for this guy. I mean, I had just watched Charlie Brown, Christmas Charlie Brown. <laughs> I was listening to Linus preach at the end of that movie. You, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe you've not seen any of the other two, but maybe, I'm sure you've seen this one. But in Luke, in Luke chapter, chapter two, as we're hearing about the birth of Jesus and the announcement of his birth, Linus, I mean, Luke, <laughs> Luke begins there in verse eight to talk about the shepherds who were out in the fields and you know the rest of the story. By the time he comes to verse 11, I, I, had, I had the gentleman there that I would, I would refer to as Serenthus. I had him read verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I said, sir, Jesus was the Christ long before his baptism, right? Whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever else, this is, all of this is before that, long before his baptism. Is it possible, sir, that you are exalting your traditions above the scripture? And have you missed something perhaps more important about this man you call the Christ? And it was the end of our conversation. But it was not the end of my prayers for, for this man. Lord, wherever Serenthus is now, or whoever this man, whatever his real name is, that's the spirit behind, behind his idea. Lord, Lord I pray that you would, uh, you would save him. And you, he would be just as zealous to promote the truth as he was to promote the error. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... So sometimes that's the best we can do is provide clarity. We, we may not persuade in that moment, but we can certainly aim to continue to provide people with God's presence through, through our company where that's allowed. We can, we can provide perspective. We can provide prayer. Why, why, again, is all this still so relevant to us? One of the big mistakes with this heresy was the idea that only, only the spiritual concerns were important. All that mattered was things that pertain to the world to come, the, the new world that Jesus was making. The rest of this earth and all the material concerns, ah, it's all gonna burn anyway, right? Why worry about it? Why polish the brass on the Titanic is the phrase. It's all gonna, it's all gonna sink. Right, so, so material concerns, the, the, a concern for the material well-being of people was beginning to be rejected. In fact, this heresy, if you look closely at your Bibles, you can see this connection as we move from verse six to seven. This was the way that the heresy was beginning to corrupt the church. John actually says there, and your, your new international version, if that's what you have, actually doesn't have the word for at the beginning of verse seven, but it's a very important word. Now, I don't mean that you should throw out your new international version. I just mean that if you ever have questions about why sometimes we prefer the English Standard Version for use in the church and for teaching, this is one of these cases. But, but as you move from verse six to verse seven, where he begins to say that we ought to love one another, then he says, for, for, this is the commandment that you should continue to walk in, for or because many deceivers have gone out into the world. And the nature of this, 
docetism, the nature of the deception it introduced was corrupting the church by taking away some of the urgency that the members of the church had to love one another in practical ways. Well, well, we're all going to die anyway. What matters is the spirit. So your material concerns for food, shelter, clothing, health care, did I just say health care? Some of you don't like that. I know, Republicans, I understand. I feel your pain. Um, but look, look, not to get too political again. I, I do that, but I understand that. But not, not, to, not to do that again. Look, a concern for people's material well-being has always been part of God's heart. Always. And that will never change, right? So just because we go one way or the other politically, it's not going to change God's heart for people's overall well-being, right? So the church should never think that those things are not part of our concern for people. How you think the government should, should relate to all the people and, and what policies you think should be preferred, that's a different discussion. And again, good Christians can come down in different places on that. But that's not my task this morning. But, but caring for people, even for material needs, is always a part of the genuine Christian life. Can we say amen to that? All right, so this is a very important thing because we don't want our love to be defined by others. We want it to be defined by the scripture. So look with me very quickly at what John would have meant when he used this word over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. John spoke there and he said, it would help if I turn to it as well. By this, we know love. That Jesus, he, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, not just his hand, but that closed hand is usually an indication of a closed heart, how does the love of God abide in him? See? How does the love that we are talking about as Christians abide in one who closes his heart and his hand to those with very real and urgent material needs? Now, we all have limitations in our resources, but at least you see where the heart of God is found. And so I'm so glad that, that in this church and in many churches like this, we, we make an effort to meet even those urgent material needs. That's, that's, if you remember, every fifth Sunday, we take up a benevolence offering. That's what that does. We want to make sure that, that nope, for instance, if, if you were affected by this government shutdown, we want to at least keep a close eye on that, make sure that no matter what happens in the next coming weeks, your family still has food, clothing, shelter, and everything that you need through the midst of all those things. We share what we have in order to make sure that that's, that's a reality, okay? And so because we, we are here to love one another as the Bible defines that for us. So these things are still very relevant to us. We don't want these ideas to corrupt our willingness to love one another as God desires for us to love each other, all right? So that's one of the things that, that makes this so relevant. Another thing is this. Now, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the very image of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Whereas God is invisible, Jesus we can see. Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact representation or exact imprint of his being in nature, but yet still, our tendency throughout history has been to regard him as less than fully human. And what I'm telling you is this, this spirit behind these ideas shows itself up in our day and time, even now in other ways as well. Just as we regard Jesus, the very image of God, as less than fully human at times, we do the same to God's image bearers. I have brown skin. It was not too long ago 
we are still in the capital of the former confederacy. You do not need to look far for reminders of the fact that it was once allowable and justifiable for some who look like you to own those who look like me. And the reason for this was we backed into that justification because we believe some of the other stuff out there in the world of ideas, that I didn't have a soul. I was less than fully human. So you could do to me whatever you would do to a chair or to a horse. But friends, that was never true. It was never true. And I don't mean to guilt you this morning. I'm just telling you that John tells us we need to be able to not just look at familiar faces or hear familiar voices. We can't back into an acceptance of certain ideas because we have deep relationships with people who embrace them. We have to be able to test the spirits behind those ideas. Do you see what I'm saying here this morning? Because we belong to Christ. We belong to Christ, not first to these other people that we love. We belong to Christ. He has purchased us on the cross. Our allegiance first goes to him. And we have to be able to have enough courage to stand there as Christians. Our task is to help preserve the truth for this current generation and for future ones. We're doing the same thing. You heard about what happened recently in New York? Again, don't, don't think of your compassion just for particular women who are in a, a bind. I don't mind sharing with you that at some point in the past, I did not know whether or not my girlfriend in college was expecting, and I was scared out of my mind. I don't know whether or not there was a newly conceived life in her body. All I know is that we responded by paying for, for a plan B pill. Right, so I don't have a stone to throw at any of you here today. But I will tell you that what just happened in New York is wrong. Preborn children are fully human. They are image bearers of God. They are small and we can't see them yet. We can see them earlier than we used to be able to see them because of technology, but they're fully human. They are image bearers of God. They deserve the recognition of their full human rights from the moment God decides to give them life. Okay, and my, my message to you this morning is that that will always be true. And also, you and I, who have been on the wrong side of that at some point in our own personal life and decision making, we don't have to bear the guilt and shame of that. So let, me, let me close by walking us to the cross. You and I have something better than trying to justify that through our activism. We have forgiveness. We have forgiveness at the cross because this fully human Jesus, at one and the same time fully God, he not only is fully human, but he took that humanity all the way to the point of death. Look at, look at, look at if you would, Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five. Down through verse 8, we, we, we read there, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He humbled himself. He, he, he took on the form of a servant, and he was found in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, see Christ 
took his humanity all the way to the point of death, and this was a matter of obedience between him and the Father. He became obedient to the point of death. So the lifelong and perfect obedience of Christ to our Heavenly Father culminated on the cross. And that is so important for you and for me today because we are sinners and we deserve to be judged by God and sent away from Him him for all eternity. I certainly do. You don't need to know much more about my life than what I told you this morning to know that I do. And the same can be said for every one of us. But God has done something very special for us. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 19. This obedience that culminated on the cross, the perfect obedience of Christ, is something that God takes and, and causes this thing to benefit us eternally and spiritually. He says there that just like Adam messed things up for us, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so now by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That one man is Jesus Christ, and it is his obedience, his perfect obedience, and the record of his perfect obedience before God the Father that God takes into account when he looks at us and says, I know you have sinned, unlike my son, but I declare you to be righteous. Just as he is perfectly righteous, I declare you to be righteous. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Without Jesus' fullness of humanity, which culminates in a perfectly obedient death on the Christ and puts the cap on a life of perfect obedience, there is no possibility of righteousness for us before God. But because Jesus is not only fully God, but also fully human, the hypostatic union These are not just theological terms for me. Because this is true, we have hope before a perfect and holy God who will judge us one day for the lives that we have lived. And without the blood of Christ speaking on our behalf, it will not go well. You may be better than me, but you're not good enough to pass that test. Right, some of you are like skilled mechanics. You're much better than me. I, I, maybe I can change a light bulb on, on my, my, head, my headlight. Some of you will get in there and you, you fix the timing belt. You, you'll, do it. you'll do everything. You're, you're, some of you are like that morally speaking. You're better than me. But compared to Christ, we all stand in need. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let's come to him in our hearts now. Lord, we we pray that you would help us. You would help us to regard the truth of Christ, fully God and fully man, to see how it is still relevant for us today. To avoid the error of heresies which are centuries old and which always creep into the hearts and minds of Christians like us. Help it to no longer corrupt our willingness to love each other in the practical ways that you call us to love one another. Protect us from a feeling that only the spiritual is important and that the material is of no concern to the church. Give us the balance we ought to have from your perspective, Lord. And I pray that most of all, we would come to the foot of Jesus' cross to find the forgiveness that we need and the grace that will enable us to walk in the truth to practice the truth and to preserve the truth 
for those who are here now and for those who are to come. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.